Gail Carriger is a 13-time New York Times best-selling hybrid author, which isn't bad for someone who always considered writing a hobby. It was only when she needed a distraction from her PhD work in archaeology that she decided to try her hand at writing a novel. That book went on to become Solace, the first of five books in her best-selling Parasol Protectorate series. With 30-plus books in her backlist, the common foundational element to all of Gail's work is the heroine's journey. She's so passionate about this subject that on October 1st of 2020, she self-published a nonfiction writing resource on this very subject and how it contrasts with the hero's journey. To learn more about Gail's journey, traditional publishing versus self-publishing, and the heroine's journey, be sure to listen to today's episode of the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Fearless Storyteller Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Freckleton. Have you ever noticed how fear stops us from creating and sharing our best work? Join the Fearless Storyteller as we explore the heart and soul of writing stories, songs, and scripts that sell with the people who write them. Each guest has their own unique hero's journey and insights into the intersections between limiting beliefs and success. If you're enjoying this podcast, be sure to leave a review on your favorite podcatcher of choice. Also, be sure to check out the show notes for a link to the Patreon offerings. We've got some good ones for you. Thanks so much for being a listener and supporter of the show. Enjoy today's interview. Gail Carriger, welcome to the Fearless Storyteller. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Hey, it's my pleasure. Uh, I've been meaning to invite you for, to the show for a while thanks to a recommendation from Lindsay Baroker. Um, but I saw that you had a new book coming out soon called The Heroine's Journey for Writers, and I thought this might be a good time to chat. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very, my, my first and very likely only nonfiction book. <laughs> <laughs> well, for people who don't know who you are, what would you like to share about yourself? Uh, well, let's see. I am a hybrid author, so I write for traditional publishers and uh, large publishers out of New York, as well as small presses. And I also self-publish quite a bit now. Um, and I've been doing self-publishing for about five or six years, and I've been a full-time author for traditional publishing for about 10 years now. Mm. Um, prior to that, I was an archaeologist. So mostly what I write is uh, science fiction, fantasy, and young adults. Um, and I tend to write comedic stuff and romance-heavy stuff, um, and mm. all of it is heroine's journey. So I've basically built a career on the heroine's journey. Wow. Okay. And so for people who don't know then what the heroine's journey is, or have maybe heard about it 30 or 40 years ago in some other form, um, <laughs> like what do we need to know? Uh, well, it is a different uh, model of narration that includes different archetypes and tropes and narrative beats and steps from the hero's journey. So there are two different journeys, uh, pretty much from the ground up, and it has nothing to do with the biological sex of your main character or your POV character. Uh, it mm. has to, the name hero and heroine is just the kind of moniker for the journey style. Um, it's a it's a genderless term under the context of narration. Okay. Um, so that's like the most important thing to know. So, for example, um, the recent movie Wonder Woman, the main character is a hero on a very classic, very very typical hero's journey. Okay. Uh, whereas uh, a story like the Harry Potter, both each individual book, but also the whole series of the Harry Potter, both the books and the movies, that's a heroine's journey that Harry is undertaking. So, um, yeah, they are materially different from each other. And uh, a lot of that has to do with how you as the narrator of these journeys, um, the, the kind of patterns that you're tapping into to give your readers satisfaction and excitement and comfort. But it also has to do with how the narrative kind of defines strength and goals and motivation, that mm. sort of thing. Mm. And 
is this something that like you know i i hear about the heroine's journey and i've been reading your arc which is very clear and and excellent resource so far that i've been enjoying um like is are have we been calling other stories heroes journeys or trying to write heroes journeys but when in fact they are a heroine's journey like for some people who might be struggling I think stories. so. Um, I think. And how would you most, know? Like, would... yeah, it, yeah. I think most writers know or have learned at least somewhat the specifics or the basic pattern of a hero's journey, um, and they just don't realize that there is a heroine's journey that is as popular, if not more so, um, in terms of just like consumer interest. Mm. Um, and, but. And, and you might, as a writer, be sort of accidentally on purpose uh, utilizing the heroine's journey without ever having it explicitly defined for you. So, for example, um, most romances, a lot of young adult narratives, particularly young, young adult narratives that are about social discovery, so discovering mm. your place in the world, for example, rather than um, discovering your inner strengths. So the, the discovering your place and friendship group and how you belong, that, that tends to be more of a heroine's journey. Mm. And then, um, some other interesting, uh, commercial genre, uh, fictions like, um, cozy mysteries are often heroine's journeys, mm. uh, and, and those sorts of things. And so if you are kind of leaning into a genre and you're very comfortable writing in it, then you might be kind of accidentally writing these heroine's journeys without even realizing it because, you know, the, the readers of those genres are interested in that kind of narrative. Mm. Um, and so basically I just wrote this book to explicitly set it forth, uh, I don't use any kind of Jungian psychological analysis the way that Campbell does, but essentially I was like, look, here's the pattern, here are the genres that use it, here are some good examples, and here's the historical foundation mythology for, for it. Um, and I'm not, and I'm absolutely not claiming that all narratives can be divided into a heroine's journey and a hero's journey. There are uh, lots of other different, you know, versions of narrative, not the least of which is because these two journeys are based in Western mythologies. Um, so there's, there's tons of other stuff to draw on, but I just personally use the heroine's journey so much. And I would sort of go to conventions or I would talk to my fellow writers and I just casually start slinging terms and talking about the heroine's journey. And usually mm -hmm. I would be met with just blank faces of utter confusion. And, and so finally I was like, well, I need a, I need a resource that I can just point people towards. Yeah. And I, and I waited for an academic to write it. Nobody did. So finally, I was like, <laughs> okay, I, I guess that's, that's me. I'll, I'll yes. write it. I suppose people who would have any familiarity may have heard of, of one by Maureen Murdoch back in yes. the eighties. Right. Yes. And, but that is, that is very Jungian. And it, and it's, and it's very much, in, in other words, it's like a psychological analysis of a person's self journey through life more than it is sort of a guide for authors or screenwriters or what have you. Mm. Um, and also it's, it's a clear rebuttal to Campbell. She studied with Campbell. Um, mm. And so she's sort of very vested in, you know, countering some of his uh, broad statements about the hero's journey. Um, and also both she and Campbell conflate um, gender with the journey. So, uh, which yeah. I t take very strong issue with. Yeah. Um, and, so, and I'm glad you yeah. do. It, it, <laughs> you, so to differentiate really, you get more into like, how can writers use it yes. right away? Yeah, I'm really interested in basically like training people who consume popular culture, readers, watchers, or us uh, authors as well, um, into how to identify the the differences between the two in particular, but also just to identify a heroine's journey when it's it's in front of you, um, and then you know how to how to write it, and because it can it can be very helpful, for example, with writer's block, because if you've been proceeding along thinking that you're writing a hero's journey, but you're writing a romance novel, then you're writing a heroine's journey, and mm -hmm. like. And so you might be relying on a whole toolkit that the hero's journey gives you um, that, that will be failing you. Mm -hmm. like, and, and so like you, you might, for example, be constantly isolating your heroine because that for the hero's journey, that is a means by which he can be, become stronger is to, to achieve things on his own. Um, whereas a heroine kind of becomes stagnates in isolation. So she needs um, to have companions come along and offer her advice and help her. And that's, that's not a weakness. That's her, her greatest strength is in the fact that she can network. Right. And so, and I'm using her and his, uh, just casually. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and and so there's a, it's just there's a different toolkit if you're a writer depending on which journey you're writing if if you are intending to write one of these uh and so you know you can hit up against some pretty bad things like writer's block if if you're accidentally um walking along your, the wrong narrative path so to speak yeah. and i imagine people can get a little more lost if, you know there's a lot of different writers books that restate the form of the hero's journey, but may not be explicit about some of the things you go into. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of uh, creating character arcs by KM Island, right? Like, you know, where there's more of the form is there's a limiting belief and they have to overcome the limiting belief. So it's kind of generic and maybe has room to encompass both journeys. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's definitely like all craft books, you know, I can only write from my perspective as an author and I'm very much interested in sort of the patterns of narration. So kind of what archetypes and tropes and how you can sort of tap into these, what are essentially sort of subconscious patterns that we've developed from generations of oral storytelling and mythology and stuff. Um, and that allows you essentially as a writer to manipulate your reader's expectations. Mm. And you can do that by fulfilling the outcome that they expect, or you can twist at the end and surprise them with, with, with something different. Um, and so kind of just knowing, just having a foundation of these, these narrative arcs allows you to better satisfy your readers in the, the long haul. And so for me as a writer, that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in. And so this is sort of written from that perspective. Like these are these patterns around us and they set up expectations in our, in our readers. How do you use that to incur emotion in your readers? Because presumably as a writer, that's, or a screenwriter or a storyteller in general, that's what you want to do more than anything. Yeah. That's what I want to do. <laughs> well, and it seems to get to kind of the underlying, not necessarily genre of a story, but the um, emotional resonance of the story and the experience that readers are going to have. Yes, and why they, or we, because I'm, I'm, I'm also a reader, gravitate towards one narrative or another um, or flip-flop between the two. And that has to do with the sort of, the sensation that reading that book or watching that movie leaves you with and brings to you. Um, and for me, the sensation that most people are looking for when they read a hero's journey is excitement. So things like um, suspense novels tend to be hero's journeys. Um, whereas what readers of the heroine's journey are usually searching for is comfort. Mm -hmm. One of the epiphanies I had reading your book was that um, my comedy sci-fi series that I co-wrote with J.R. Frontera is actually a heroine's journey. And I've been, you know, we get into marketing after we do the book, right? And we yes. release it and all that. And yeah, I think I've been thinking explicitly about what we're talking about, that it's a mistake to target my book to readers of heroes' journeys. And that makes more sense to be hitting people who are looking for that resonance. That That's true, find. too. Yeah. And also, when you know the emotional, and there's a little bit, there's a tiny little bit, I don't go into it very much about kind of marketing towards the end of the book, but mm. um, there's a little bit about, like, you can also learn about yourself if you're, you know, looking for keywords and reviews and things like that. Or, but if you're looking for keywords to advertise against, it's the same thing, mm. is you're going to want to choose some of the keywords that satisfy the journey. Mm. Um, you know, so words like comfort or charming or, you know, um, uplifting, those, those sorts of things. Um, and, and that, you know, also kind of teach, like for me, it was very educational going through and, and I just did sort of keyword cloud analysis of, of all of positive reviews to see, mm. to try and understand what it was that people liked about my book. And then I, I use those words right back at them when I'm writing descriptions or ad copy for the next book. So I get witty and charming a lot when people are, are, are talking about my stuff or delightful. Um, and I ended up naming one of my new uh, series is the Delightfully Deadly series because people use the word delightful so much when they're talking about my books. I was like, well, I'll just, I'll just take ownership of that word. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, but that's, yeah, that, that is, is I, I haven't strategically really tried targeting specifically kind of heroine's journey terminology, but it's not a bad idea. Yeah, well, you and I and anybody else listening might, might <laughs> give that a go here in the coming weeks and compare notes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk more about you 
personally and your writing journey. Um, and I guess I'll start with the kind of gateway there. Like, did you always know you were going to be writing heroines journey stories would be my first question. Um, I knew as soon as I learned about them. So I didn't learn about the sort of narrative conceit of either the hero or the heroine's journey until I went to university. And I have a classical foundation in learning about them. So not a, I didn't take um, creative writing courses at the university level. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so I was in classics courses because of uh, archaeology. And, um, and so that is, that's how I learned about it. And, uh, and then I realized as I, I that I, I'm a voracious reader and I always have been. I've always written too, but mostly I read. And so then I realized that the narratives that I was really attracted to were heroines journeys as a general rule. And then I got interested in kind of like why they're so critically disenfranchised and, mm. you know, why we know so much about the hero's journey and so little about the heroine's journey in the sort of general zeitgeist um, here in the United States specifically. And so then I, I sort of just been kind of, I guess, a dilettante interest in this subject that for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, and I just, I write heroine's journeys because I read them or I read them. Um, and that's kind of what I've always loved to do. Uh, and so it just, you know, I kind of wrote them instinctually at first. And then I started to get interested in kind of the, the actual analysis of these journeys from a writer perspective once my career started to take off. Mm. And, and that is, is partly because when I studied them, I studied them mostly from a kind of gender analysis and historical analysis perspective with a little bit of sort of Campbell, Jungian, Murdoch-ness thrown in, but mostly just, you know, from a historical base. And so, and then as a full-time writer, I was like, well, how does this what is our, what is the, what are the patterns that I can identify that actually inform my writing and might help other writers? Yeah. And let's talk about your, your early publishing experiences. Like, it sounds like you kind of had a handle on what you like to write and you've been writing for a period of time. When did you, when did you decide that you were going to try to get published? So I come out of the uh, geeky world of, of fandom, um, and I've always I've been going to like science fiction and fantasy conventions since I was a wee little thing, um, and as part of and I also always wrote, but I grew up um, in a kind of artist communal situation, and uh, the one thing I knew pretty firmly was that nobody made any money if they were writers, mm. uh, so that was not a good career path. Uh, mm. So I wrote, but it was, I always considered it a hobby and I never thought I would ever go anywhere, but I am the kind of personality where if I'm, if I write the thing, I might as well try to get it published. So I was um, working on my PhD at the time and I, to distract myself, uh, gave my, threw down a challenge at myself to write this book that it was the book I really wanted to read that no one else was writing. Mm. Urban fantasy was a, a really big deal at the time, but it, it was very dark for me. I don't like to read that dark. Um, so I, I'm reading science fiction and fantasy. I'm interested in urban fantasy. I want something that's not dark. I want it. Uh, I want it to have a historical setting because I really like a historical setting, and I wanted it to be funny, written by women, written by a woman with a with a female main character. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just not happening. I mean, funny alone is pretty hard to find in science fiction and fantasy. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, with, with some notable exceptions, but it's still hard. And when you do find it, it's usually written by um, a man with a sort of masculine bent. So um, Christopher Moore, Jasper Ford. Right. Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett are like the ones that immediately come to mind. And, and I, and I love them all. Don't get me wrong, but I was like, I, I would really like this to be an urban fantasy in a historical setting, but funny. Mm -hmm. um, and so I basically just wrote that and uh, steampunk happened as a sort of happy accident side effect of my thought experiment about what would the, how would Victorian scientists react to um, vampires and werewolves in their midst. Um, and I just, and the humor kind of wrote itself because the Victorian era is so absurd. And then if you stick a couple of care, a couple of monsters in there with weird quirks, like having to get naked, you know, like, yay, hilarious, hilarity ensues. So uh, just to stop so, you there for a moment, you know, some yeah. people get hung up on the idea of writing humor as being hard and it is know, hard. Yeah. <laughs> but you just said it isn't hard if. And you know, it, well, I was attracted I mean, to that statement. <laughs> it's it isn't hard if you write parody of of a time period, which you know I happen to 
love the Victorians, but also think they're completely absurd. Um, and that's, and I find, you know, I find great appeal in sort of very structured social systems. I think they're very interesting and also very fun to kind of poke at and poke fun at and play in. I like a very rule bound mm -hmm. world, whether I'm writing science fiction or fantasy or, or alternate history or whatever. Um, I like guidelines and very clear parameters that I can kind of bounce around and off of like a little rubber ball of insanity. Uh, and so, yeah, so I just wrote this, this little silly book for myself as a challenge and it had so much genre mashup in it that, you know, I, and I was aware enough of how the industry worked at that juncture to be like, yeah, this isn't going to sell because it doesn't sit on a shelf anywhere. Like it's, it's essentially a comedy of manners, but it's urban fantasy. It's alt history. It's steampunk. It's a romance. It's, and it's, and it's funny. Like, it's just like, who, who, who will know what even kind of cover to put on it? It's just too absurd, mm -hmm. but I wrote it. And so I send it out into the universe to see if anybody would be interested in it. Um, and 10 years later and 13 New York times bestsellers and 30 odd books that I'm like, okay, uh, that worked. Who knew? Uh -huh. uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, like, did you go through an agent in that experience to, so this was back in the early days, uh, when there were a few publishing houses that till still took slush. Um, and I submitted Solace, which was this, this book, which, which to be clear and fair to anybody listening, it was like the 10th book I'd written. Like the, there I am just like many, most mm. other authors out there, which is I have a trunk full of unpublishable stuff. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, so, and I had a couple of short stories that had been picked up and the only short stories I ever sold were funny ones. And that was one of the lessons I took was like, oh, okay. When people like to read me or at least when editors like to buy me, they like to buy me when I'm funny. So yeah. I'll do funny. Um, yeah. And so, uh, I sent it out to slush and, uh, a publishing house said, picked, called me. Like it was one of those like magical stories. You don't really hear anymore where I'm mm. sitting at a cafe and a two, one, two number comes up on my phone. And I was like, Oh my God, that's New York. <laughs> um, and, 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 and wanted to buy it. And I was like, Oh, Oh, I don't, I'm not prepared for this. Uh, and then I got an agent. <laughs> so uh -huh. I, went out, I went a little backwards. I um, imagine it was a lot easier to get an agent at that point. Yeah. When you have an offer at the table, it is a bit easier. Um, yeah. And I, I had already, you know, been rejected by plenty of agents and I kept an eye on agents and I, I kind of had my top agent pick who had incidentally rejected me before, but very mm. nicely for a young adult project. Um, but I really liked her cause I, I liked, uh, the clientele that she was picking and she seemed really, really hungry and really tough. Um, and yeah, and that's Kristen Nelson who is still my agent now, 11, maybe 12 years later. Um, I've had many, many, many different editors and publishers since then, but I have kept the same agent and I'm very, very grateful to her for sticking with me for so long. Um, and I do consider myself the lucky one. I, I have very few author friends who have that, had that experience. But yeah. Um, yeah, and we actually ended up going with a different publisher than the one that first wanted the book oh, after, really? after a, a, almost a year of contract negotiations. <laughs> Was that a little scary, like that whole process? What comes up when you get an offer and you're not ready and then you decide <laughs> to push this pause button for a year? Like uh, I would, well, I would probably freak out, back, right? Course. Well, this is the thing, and um, I, 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 I don't want to upset <laughs> other like writers out there listening, but I never stopped believing that this was a hobby. I'm still slightly startled that it isn't for me. Mm. Um, so I, and I, then I was like, still, you know, I was three. I was half the way through my PhD when all of this was happening. Um, with with two master's degrees under my belt and like working <laughs> in the field and everything, and I was like, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm not going to be an author. Like that's, that's silly. I'm an archeologist. Um, and so as I have since often yelled down the telephone at various recalcitrant, um, editors, what I probably shouldn't be, I don't want it as badly as other writers want it. Mm. I'm like, I, I was, I'm like, you, I will walk away. And I have, uh, from many contracts where I'm just like, no, I'm not going to sign that. Uh, and now I have so many alternatives, but, um, but, Back then I was like, so the, the sticking point, and I don't mind talking about specifics because, you know, I'm not going to name the publishers in play, yeah. but, um, 
But the sticking point was the publisher in question wanted the, the, there's something called an option clause in your um, contract. And the option clause is the right that the publisher has to the next thing that you write. Right. So in other words, they have what's basically a, a right of first refusal or a right to counteroffer. So, you know, when I write one book for them, then the next book I write, they can option it. In other words, they have a preemptive option as my existing publisher to take on that book. Um, and you know, usually negotiations will commence about amounts of money and that sort of thing. But, um, the option clause should be for, from an author's perspective, what we would call very tight, which is, it should be for something like the next book written under the name Gail Carriger set in a historical setting that is novel length. That's a very tight option clause. That's the kind of option clause you want. An option clause should not be for the next book written by you. Mm -hmm. That's horrible. And that was the option clause that was in place for the first publisher Uh, I was working with. And I looked at that and said, what that basically that that didn't even say book. It said the next, you know, thing written. So short story. And, 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 but that also covered academic articles Hmm. and nonfiction. And I was like an easy one to walk away from, but also, yeah, to ask for them to remove it was well, or to case? change it like I, that's and that's what my agent my agent was only i think at that juncture my agent was only asking them to say fiction in that option clause um yeah, which is still and, huge uh, and i was and they refused and i was like i, I I'm, I'm like i'm not putting my archaeological career in jeopardy for this <laughs> i was mm. like i'm sorry everybody but I will not sign that option clause, period. And, and, you know, and the editor was like, well, we obviously we don't want to see your nonfiction. And I was like, well, then put that in the contract. Right. <laughs> and they wouldn't. And eventually I was like, we have to try. I, basically, I turned to um, Kristen at one point and I was like, you have to see if anyone else is interested. Yeah. Because um, cause I'm not going to, we're, we're not going to do this <laughs> if this is the case. Mm. Um, and fortunately, other publishers were interested. So <laughs> several of them. So um it turned out that my funny little silly ridiculous book that I thought you know no one would care about and would never sell it just happened to be that the book that people were excited about at that point in time. Yeah. Um, and then I so you know continuing with the journey, uh, my publisher who is still my publisher bought it at that point, Orbit, and um, and they were my editors was great and very easy to work with and everything went completely smoothly at that <laughs> juncture. And then mm-hmm. they bought it and they were like, well, we don't we don't actually know what to do with this. Like, we're not sure how to package this or we don't, you know, we, we know we want it to be a series. And I was like, Oh, you want me to write more with the same characters? Okay. Uh, so I went off and started writing another book and they figured out um, how to market it and gave it an award-winning cover actually, which uh, gave me a career. The, the mm. cover on that first book is, is my career. It's, it's genius. It looks dated now, but you know, 10 years ago, 12, 11 years ago, a while ago, it was um, pretty groundbreaking. And, um, and that was it. That, that started it all. And then my, my mm. second book, Changeless. So Solace was a very slow burn. Um, it, it was a book that people discovered and then kind of talked about word of mouth wise. Um, and, it, and it had huge support with like just people working the till at bookstores and stuff like that. And so people would take like stacks of it next to the till and someone would be buying an Agatha Christie mystery and they would say, well, this, this book is really funny and it has a mystery in it. You should try this. Yeah. Um, or somebody would be buying the latest Jim Butcher and, and some, and you know, someone would say, well, if you like Jim Butcher, you should try this. And it was a mass market paper, paperback. So it was like an $8 buy-in. And you know? so a lot of people were like, sure, I'll give that strange little book a try. Nice. Um, and that strange little book went off and people didn't know where to shelve it. So it was stuck in like science fiction, fantasy or horror. Some people, it got stuck in YA a couple of times. It got put a lot of times in the romance section. So I got a lot of romance readers. Um, so I, I have a very egalitarian <laughs> fan base too. So it's, it's the confusion over what it was and what category mm. it fit into actually weirdly worked in its favor at that time. I don't know if that could happen now. Mm. Um, but, and so, so the first book was a very, very, like I said, slow burn, uh, but by the time the second book came around and, and I'd written it fast enough for it to come out six months after the first one, um, which was good, which was a good kind of momentum capitalization that, that sort of speed doesn't usually happen in traditional publishing. Usually there's at least a year gap, but, uh, um, yeah, so that one was six months and then, um, and that one hit the New York times and then kind of everything changed after that, um, in terms of 
how I was treated and how the books were treated <laughs> and <laughs> what contracts looked like and, and everything. Right. And so you've been doing, like you're, you, at some point you decided to do hybrid as well yes. and get into self-publishing. Yeah. And I'm going to back into this question a little bit because uh, for somebody who's debating, maybe they're early in their career, uh, they're debating whether or not that the book they've just written should be something that they query or take to self-publishing. And, and let's take off the table any unwillingness to learn business and marketing. Let's just say they, <laughs> let's just say they understand that yes. both these things exist. Yes. Why would you pick one versus the other this early is a really in your career? Hard question to answer because I tend to think that in some ways it is dependent on the genre that you're writing in. Mm -hmm. um, there are definitely certain genres where uh, the money and the contracts are so poor that um, it's, it's, it seems silly to me not to self-publish. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome to be as detailed as you want about that. Uh, romance and erotica, for example. Um, okay. And and to a certain extent, some science fiction fantasy as well. Um, and then there are, I have to say, there are plenty of genres that I don't know anything about, like memoir, for example, and I can't speak to that at all. Um, and then there are other genres where I feel like still, although anything can change at this juncture in history, um, a traditional publisher at least gives you, gives you more than it takes away in terms mm. of benefits. Uh, a good tradition traditional publisher. Um, and I still think that children's and probably all the way up to middle grade and all the way up to a young adult um, is probably still worth querying first uh, mm -hmm. because the barrier to entry is still guarded by schools and library systems. And those systems are very difficult for an individual author to crack into, which is not to say that people haven't done it and done it well, just that it's a bit more challenging than, than you know, than I would like to take on if I were starting out a career now. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's the first thing is to really think about the, the genre that you're in and try and approach it from that perspective. Um, also what kind of career you want. Um, it's de definitely easier to be a hybrid author if you're willing to write in series. So if you're somebody who likes to build a world and then write a lot within that same world or write a lot with the same main character, mm -hmm. um, then that, then, uh, then self-publishing is going to be an easier route. But if you're somebody who's really egalitarian in the way you write and you like writing and jumping between one thing and the next, that basically means every time you write a new book, you're relaunching into a new genre. And it, it I think it helps to have traditional backing under those circumstances too. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other yeah. thing is I think people, I mean, I think you as an author need to be very self-aware going in. I mean, you, you said let's ignore whether you want to learn the business or not, but, like you have to know about yourself as a person. And if you're the kind of person who really genuinely just wants to sit in an ivory tower with a beret on and write, mm -hmm. then you, then you're gonna lose half your income to a traditional publisher and you have to be contented with that. Like, yeah. and, yeah. and all of the control over the end product, because you have chosen to just be this, just be the old fashioned style of writer, you know, the, the eccentric in the garret with the typewriter. But if that's what you genuinely want and the kind of person you are, I mean, I've had this conversation with some of my best friends who are authors who are strict by the book, traditionally published authors mm -hmm. and who write, you know, say short stories or novellas. And I'm just like, you know how easy it is just to put that out yourself. Like, mm -hmm. um, and they're just like, I just don't want to do that. I don't want to do any of it. I don't want to have to deal with a vendor. I don't want to post it. Like, I'm just not an, like, I'm not emotionally ready for that. I don't like spreadsheets. I don't want to do any of that stuff. Yeah. Um, and if that's your personality, then you should, on like absolutely try trad first you, you yeah. still might not get picked up i mean well, you're probably i, I, I imagine up, but. <laughs> i imagine there's an allure to the sure thing of an advance when you're early in your career and you know it's going to take time to scale up your business that's true but you have to remember um 
that the advance means advance like that it's it's in the word itself that that is an advance against the return of your royalties so mm -hmm. um you've been given money with the expectation that you'll be making money and you will not earn any more money on that book until you have earned out your advance so and it's it's not a loan you don't have to repay it if the book doesn't perform well but you'll certainly look bad so far as the mm -hmm. publisher is concerned if you don't perform well Right. But I think some authors forget that, um, just like many authors forget when they get the advance that that is a 1099 income here in the United States and you're going to be paying taxes on it. Like, so don't just go spend all of your advance either, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and it, like having said all that about sitting in the ivory tower, it's also true that authors are expected to do promotional work and publicity and marketing. Um, even if you're with a traditional publisher now, like the onus is on you to, to at least do something. I um, and I believe that every yeah. author should have a newsletter at the very least. Mm, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned the news newsletter because I hear about a lot of trad pub author authors who don't have one. And it's I'm, a nightmare. <laughs> and when, when did you start your newsletter? Was Not this before or after you did the self-publishing <laughs> choice? Um, so uh, one of the, I mean, you, you touched on this when we talked briefly about self-publishing, but I went into self-publishing partly because I have so many friends who are also self-published. Mm. Um, and so I, I've been a traditional author, but I have always sort of acted a little bit like a self-published author, and I actually blame podcasts for that. <laughs> so I've been, a, I've been a podcast listener forever since the real, like since like 2005. And yeah. so, you know, I am friends with some of the early fiction podcasters like T. Morris, Pip Ballantyne, Mer Lafferty, um, who else? Um, anyway, uh, and, um, and so because of them and because I hung out with them because I'm a fan of podcasts, so I'm a fan of podcasting and I would like sidle up to them at parties at conventions and be like, oh my God, I know your voice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and they are, were also some of the early pioneers from my perspective of self-publishing. Um, and so I got to see what it was like and I got to see what, you know, having to hustle in order to get an audience was like and stuff. And so, you know, even as my career was sort of taking off in traditional publishing, I've always behaved a bit like a self-published author. Um, and I've always paid attention to what the self-published side of the industry is. Um, and uh, particularly in romance, because the romance industry was is always very early to early adopt. Um, they early adopted eBooks. Mm -hmm. They early adopted, you know, a self-publishing business model. It's a, it's a group of, of women who write romance that are very sort of business savvy, at least in many of them are and so i would like i'm like i'm gonna make some romance writer friends you know <laughs> like here we go um and because i i also have so many romance readers i was like i better know what's going on, on in that industry also yeah um and so so i i but i still didn't get a newsletter fast enough <laughs> i'm still mad at myself for not like going out on book tour when I was being sent on these massive book tours, you know, five, mm. six years ago and not taking my sign up sheet with me for the first three years. I'm like, oh, oh I missed out on somebody. Um, but I've worked really hard since then to have a very healthy, very funny, very, you know, friendly newsletter that people get very excited to read every month. I only do it once a month. Mm. Um, and I, and, and so, you know, that, that was like, that, that is the thing that if anybody ever asks me anything about like, what's one of your biggest my regrets, I'm like, I didn't do a newsletter sooner. <laughs> so do a newsletter. Um, and even if you're a beginning author who has one book out there, or even if you don't have anything out there, I think it's a good habit to train yourself into, to do a newsletter anyway. So send out that newsletter to your five family members that are subscribed to it, yeah. <laughs> do it faithfully and do it you know, once a month. Um, and come up, you know, like experiment and come up with tricks and tips to get them to respond to you or mm -hmm. get them to make sure they open it. Um, and, and, you know, and I, I'm a big fan of like by example. So, you know, one of the things I do and did is sign up for other people's newsletters to see how they handle it for my favorite authors or, you know, and, and if they don't do it well and I'm not engaged by their newsletter, that's a lesson that I am learning from that author. Yeah. Of why, why isn't this working? Um, so yeah, that, that was my big one is, is the newsletter. Um, it's important. And, I, yeah. and I still like, and, and you are not wrong. Like the last world con I was at, um, you know, at one of these old guard hero, uh, sci-fi fantasy authors of mine, uh, sidled up to me at a party and was like, Gail, this newsletter thing. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> sweetie. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I imagine it makes 
the jump into hybrid from trad pub a lot easier because yes. you've get, got this economy of scale that you got from the trad pub as far as reach and yes. if you're able to I, capture they gave them. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the reasons I kind of suck at offering new writers right now advice because I entered the self-publishing world with a platform. It was a platform that I had not ad like activated on my behalf as good as I could have, but it was still a platform. Mm -hmm. And because my option clause was so tight at that juncture, because my agent had seen me walk away from a contract because of the option clause, and she was like, okay, Gail cares a lot about this. We will make sure this is very healthy. Um, I could write within my traditionally published universe, um, and I could write spinoffs of that universe, and I could do all of this stuff within you know, my traditional universe. And in fact, there are still, I think, I mean, I don't, these are not people I have contact with, but I think I have a large number of fans out there who, who don't get my newsletter, don't interact with me, um, and, but who buy my self-published books because they look, act, and walk, talk, and do everything exactly the way my traditional books. I, mm -hmm. I've taken the cover mm -hmm. art style and adopted it for my self-published books. So they're pretty seamless. And I will occasionally get a very annoyed letter from a fan over email because I have a, a calling card feature on my website where they're like, I don't understand why this one book is like two millimeters taller in the UK <laughs> than all of your other books. And I'm like, mm, that one was that was self-published and the other ones are traditionally published. And I was like, that's my only option was two millimeters taller. I'm so sorry. Um, you know, or I'll, I'll get someone and this doesn't happen very often. Actually, I expect it to happen more, but you get occasionally people who with the printed books in particular, are like, why is it, you know, so much more expensive because yeah. print on demand is, is just, it's way more expensive to do than in, in bulk traditional publisher can do, you know? So like my paperbacks in the UK are six ninety nine. But the paperbacks that I do have to be eleven ninety nine, and I'm like, I'm I'm sorry. It's if you wanted a printed book, that's the best I can do, you know. Right. So there are, you know, I, I try as much as possible to keep the brand consistent, but there are definitely things that are are that's notably different. Yeah. yeah. And so, are you doing Ingram Spark or something else? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's the other thing is traditionally published meant I have a wide platform and I have an international platform. So I'm in like 21 different translated languages at this juncture, mm. um, which means I have fans all over the world. Um, and because I was traditionally published initially, I was wide. So I'm on every platform all over the world. Um, and I'm in audio and all of these things. And so um, I have all of those fans or the portion of those fans who are interested enough in an author to want to contact them um, all over the internet, <laughs> essentially, I have access to those. Um, and so as a direct result of that, I kind of don't consider myself having the option of ever being exclusive to any one platform mm -hmm. um, because I would get too many angry emails, frankly. And I do a lot of what I do now in my career to avoid getting angry emails from people. <laughs> I'm like, I just don't want to, I just don't want to upset my fans. Uh, yeah. That's it. That's yeah. all I really care about is not upsetting them because they will get very, very mad. I suppose um, that's fair. <laughs> I, I just do it out of fear. Uh, and so I just, and so I, I, I have to be wide as a, as an author, or okay. I emotionally feel like I have to be wide. So um, that adds it, expense to the self publishing model that you're doing then. It, yes. But, yeah. In time. Um, and in, in, for Ingram, it's a little bit of expense. It more adds annoyance than anything else because, mm. you know, keeping all those platforms updated and all of those platforms mm. in balance. I'm thinking and, about audiobooks and translations and all those. Um, yeah, no. So as a self-published author, I haven't done any translations yet. Um, and that is partly because my three biggest markets outside of the English speaking world are Germany, France, and Japan. Mm -hmm. um, Germany has very weird uh, copyright rules over translations. The translator owns the copyright. Uh -huh. um, so I would have to find a German translator based in the United States and a whole bunch of other stuff in order to do German. And frankly, many of my German readers also read English anyway. So they're mostly reading in English, so far as I can tell. Um, I, I have looked into French translations, and I, I might continue to pursue that, but to be perfectly honest, it's a very small market share for sci-fi fantasy readers. It's just, it's like, you know, their population is, what, twice that of California, and what mm. percentage of that reads in ebook form, and then what percentage of that reads 
uh, science fiction and fantasy. So you're getting not like, will the expense ever be justified? I don't know. Translations are very expensive. Yeah. Is um, that something your agent can help with or yes, and she, she focused has on? Some, yeah. My agent is very, very flexible. She represents Hugh Howie amongst other major, huge self-published authors. So she's very comfortable with this. Hmm. Um, so she, I sent her all the assets of all of my um, self-published books and then, and then I have a, I have a foreign agent as well. So they're always up for translation, but so far, um, none of them have been snapped up. And then, uh, you know, Japan, which is my third biggest territory is, is a, has a whole other package of <laughs> issues and concerns. Um, so yeah, so I haven't really looked into translation, but I do have a lot of English people who read in English, but are in other countries. Um, and so, yeah, and so international wide was important. And then and then because of the platform share that traditional publishing takes, you know, I have lots of readers on Kobo in particular. Um, so, you know, if I, if I don't provide the books as widely as possible, then, you know, I'm just not going to have, I'm going to have too many really angry <laughs> emails. I also provide all of my self-published stuff. I provide directly on my website as well. So if anybody complains that they can't find it on a platform and those are completely international, like it's not, it, it's just like, you get the asset. If you buy it from me directly, like you get the ebook. Um, mm. So, uh, and, and so if anybody complains too much, I'm just like, look, you could just here, it's right. It's right here. You just, buy it from my website. <laughs> like, there you go. Uh, sorry, you have to have a side load, but it'll all be all right in the end. <laughs> and it sounds like you're comfortable with the technology piece of dealing with this. Oh yeah. Uh, I'm a pretty reluctant adopter, but, uh, if it comes to my business and my living, um, I have to learn how to do it. Then I learn, mm. learn how to do it. If I can find an expert to hire, that's my preferred technique. <laughs> but, um, but you know, one of the I'm a total control freak, which is one of the major reasons I took to self-publishing so excitedly. Uh, and it's just, and it's so delightful to be able to be like, oh, that, that spelling error that has irritated me for 10 years, when I'm self-publishing, I can just fix it and mm -hmm. upload a new version. And it's... Mm -hmm fixed and it's and, I, and nobody reports the error to me anymore and, I, and it, it's and it's just fixed it's so easy <laughs> so um that part of self-publishing i i couldn't adore more also you know i could just be like i would like to change the cover and see what happens yeah what's been the hardest part of self-publishing for you well like uh, I mean, like all self-published authors, the self-published side of my income is predominantly Amazon. Um, and Amazon is impossible to deal with. They are just terrible. Like I am pretty much always in a fight with Amazon about something. Mm. Uh, like they they just, they change an algorithm and, you know, something happens. Like recently they decided that uh, to take down the Kindle version, so that's the electronic version of one of my one of my self-published books, for absolutely no good reason. Yeah. And you know, and they just took it down. And I was like, okay, so now, it, and it's just going to be like a week to a month of fighting with them about it, and eventually they'll put it back up again. You know, and I just have to figure out what one thing I did that upset upset them. You know, <laughs> I know the band hammer can be a little scary. And yeah. and you're just like, yeah. And, but, but like, I'm so used to it now. I'm like, okay, you know, it's on my Google calendar to like talk to Amazon about something, <laughs> email Amazon, like bother, bother Amazon. My assistant has to check all the listings on Amazon, you know, to check. All, and it's just like, you know, and that's that. And, but that of course is the flip side of control is that if you want control, you have all of the control, which mm. means all of the problems are also yours to deal with. But mm. you know, the other side of that is trad where I have, sold the fourth book of my the fourth audiobook of my series to an audiobook distributor in the UK and I sold it to them and they paid me for it a year and a half ago and they still haven't listed the book it's just mm -hmm. not there <laughs> and it's my name on the cover so who gets all of the emails I do and I have yeah. to say look I it is a traditionally published book and there is absolutely nothing I can do <laughs> so uh, except to tell you that uh, if you don't want to buy it on Audible, it's available on Google Play <laughs> and Kobo. Go buy it there. There um, you go. Retrain, retrain the reader. That, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's what just happened with this this book of mine that's down on Amazon. I basically just took to social media and I was like, look, I know it's down, but did you know you could buy it from me directly? Mm, <laughs> and then, I mean, like, 
you own the assets, I get more money. And Amazon can never go into your vice, device and take it away from you. <laughs> like, mm. um, That's but, one advantage of being wide. Right? As far yeah, as exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, I basically couldn't be wide. If I put anything up exclusive, I would just get so many complaints about it. That, uh, You'd just... have to have a pen name. <laughs> yes, I would do it under a pen name if I were going to like experiment with KU or anything. But like the, the other like exciting thing about being wide and having a platform like I do is I can be very experimental. So, for example, um, I'm not, I haven't done wide on audio yet partly because no one has complained to me about it. So, mm. um, so when I do an audiobook, I uh, upload it to Audible, which puts it out to, uh, to, or ACX, which puts it out to Apple as well. But that's a seven-year contract, which is kind of a pain in the ass, but that's Amazon for you. Yeah. Um, but what I've taken to doing recently is offering it directly to buy exclusively to my newsletter subscribers for two weeks or two weeks to a month prior to me uploading it. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, and it's not, it's not cheap cause it's not a, it's an audiobook. Audiobooks are expensive, you know? So a full length audiobook is like 20, 25 bucks or something. Um, but they own it. it. They get to download it as MP3 files and it is theirs forever. Um, and, uh, and you only get that if you're, if you're part of my newsletter. And I was mm. shocked by how many people were excited by that. Like they went off and were excited to buy it, to own it. And, uh, and audible subscribers too, cause they're, it turns out quite paranoid because it's a subscription service that they're that they'll scared lose their that book. they'll yeah. lose it. If, mm. if, you know, they decide to cancel their subscription for some reason. Um, so I got a surprising number of double buys and it didn't, it didn't affect, it turned out it didn't affect my, um, audiobook numbers at all when I, when I did that. So that's, I'll be doing that kind of thing. That's going exciting. Forward. Yeah. And, yeah and, and it's not, it's not front facing. It's all private. So Amazon doesn't even know any of this is going on. Right. I hear I'm talking about it, but like I'm small fish. I don't care, but, <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that I can do as a, as a, as an indie book person that I could never have done with traditional publishing. Oh, and I'm, I'm always been crazy and experimental. So, right. or you, you can know, like, advertise. And yeah, exactly. The, the early do, the end track it, which is almost more important. Like, I yeah. could advertise my traditionally published stuff, but I'm not going to, because I don't know if it's effective or not. And I only mm. do things that I know are effective. Um, but like, I've always been like this with my career. I mean, I, I have a very clear memory of, um, my publisher approaching me, uh, and then after my third or fourth book had come out and, um, they were like, we, we, we've, we've heard about this thing called book bump. Would you, would you, how would you feel if we lowered the price of your first book electronically very low and did this book bump thing? And I was like, absolutely. Please do that. Please please do that. <laughs> Please do that with my book. Um, so yeah, so uh, that kind of worked in my favor as well early on in my career because my publisher was like, well, well, Gail will let us try with her stuff and she mm. keeps writing more books. So let's, let's just play with Gail's stuff. <laughs> and I would be like, yes, please play with it. Uh, do something different. <laughs> do, yeah. Um, so you know, so then I went and when I went to sign up for a BookBub account for myself as an independent author, there's a mm. track record of having gotten BookBubs in the past because my traditional publisher got them for me. Um, but it's associated with me now because um, BookBub keeps everything under the author's names, you know, so there's like little things like that that were very kind of helpful for my transition. It's good to know. I, you know, just I had a little side tangent question about the, the, audiobook stuff have you noticed or heard if there's a, a an audible alternative platform that's ease easier to use but like find a way voice find a way voices is the only one not, I not for authors but for the reader experience oh for oh. reader experience yeah um some sub audios i mean there's chirp which is bookbub's competitor which you can occasionally get like free audiobooks and stuff like that in mm -hmm. um but I don't know, uh, consume, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm assuming things like Apple and Google play are basically what everybody listens on. That's not audible. And there must be some other subscription services. I mean, people use the library to library, um, apps to listen to, uh, audio books. So people and, who get know. your downloadable MP3s just kind of figure it out. Or, oh yeah, they just have. Uh, you know, you got an MP3 player on your on your device of choice, and mm -hmm. so yeah, they just they just sideload it on and listen to it however they want. I mean, you could listen to it through iTunes if you're uh, have an Apple computer, or 
you know, overdrive, whatever you've got, there are, there are means to listen to MP3s. Um, mm. It just treats it kind of like a, a song and you just create a little playlist and list the chapters in order and say, voila. That's exciting. So what are you working on right now? So the Heroin's Journey is coming out October 1st. I don't know when this will drop, but that's its official release day. So I'm kind of working on uh, the promo stuff for that. Um, and then I, I always have a couple of a couple of projects in the fire. So I write. I tend to write one um, book set in my Parasol verse, which is the original universe that Solus established way back when. Uh, so do one of those. So I'm, I'm going to work we're working on one of those soon. Um, and then I have a couple of other uh, indie universes that I have a sci-fi world that I work in, and then I have a, a urban fantasy series that I work on. Um, but I'm actually uh, writing right now something completely different, which uh, I haven't felt writing, like I haven't felt the writing bug in a really long time because mm. of the kind of social and emotional situation that we're in right now, political yeah. and everything. Yep. Um, I just haven't felt like writing. And, but I've, I've, you know, worked really hard to build myself a career where I can not write for a long stretch of time if I don't feel like it or if I get sick or if my parents get sick or something. Mm. Um, so I, I've allowed myself not to write. And then recently I got blindsided by um, a new book series. So <laughs> I'm just writing that because the only thing I feel like writing. And if, and if that's the case, then I will write the thing that I feel like. I don't normally let myself do this. I'm usually pretty disciplined about like staying on target and writing projects that I know have a ready mm. market. Um, Cause it's my livelihood. This is my job. Um, yeah. But uh, we are in extenuating circumstances. And apparently it turns out that the way I want to cope with the apocalypse is writing a young adult fantasy novel for which I have no idea what's going to happen <laughs> to mm. it. But if that's how I'm going to cope, that's how I'm going to cope. I think that's fair. And, and like, I kind of want to talk more about this, but we're at time, but like, <laughs> what, what, what is it that, you know, if you were to ra rationalize, what is it that allows you to give yourself permission to have that much, you know, latitude and, and grace with what you choose to do now? Uh, it, I think it's an important lesson, particularly I mean, writers, we struggle anyway, but I think a lot of writers are perfectionists and a lot of writers, um, you know, are kind of workaholic-y. I definitely am. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've tried kind of every year for a while now to have not a goal, but a kind of like motto for the year that has to do with, with tackling the mm. flaws for lack of a better term in my own personality that make it difficult for me to actually appreciate existing and life and, mm. and living and, um, you know, like one year I had to learn to say no, which is very hard. And another year I had to learn not to travel as much. I love traveling, but I was just doing too many events and too many conventions and too much. And I was just burning out and unable to do it. It takes a lot out of me traveling as it turns out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I've just been trying to learn. And then this year, whether I like it or not, I'm having to learn to grant myself some grace, which I think mm -hmm. is something that again, a lot of writers struggle with, which is just, and, and part of that is just learning about my own process as a writer. And one of the things I've learned is that if I don't really want to write, there's plenty of other stuff I can do that make me feel like I'm in control, which is mm -hmm. usually what I want. I want to feel like I'm in control. Um, that include, you know, doing some ads or running some spreadsheets or checking some numbers or planning a social media campaign or something, you know, that sort of a thing. Mm. Um, and really what my brain, what my writer brain is telling me that it needs to rest and cogitate and recoup in the background. Um, and, and I think a lot of writers are scared that they'll never want to write again. Mm -hmm. And for me, at least I'll always want to write again. It just some takes some time. Sometimes it's a week or two and sometimes it's a month or two. But eventually I'll want to write again. Um, and so part of the compassion for myself with me was learning to trust that that's, it'll come back. Yeah. Um, and all I have to do is be ready to write when it comes back. I like that. So for people who want to learn more about you, Gail, how can they do that? My website's the best place. Uh, it is my home. It's kept up to date. Uh, I'm really good about that. <laughs> and uh um, you can find me on almost every social media platform, but I have been uh, writing more than I've been online recently. So um, I'm not 
there very much. Mm. Um, although there's, there's almost always content on my social media platforms because I have a lot of articles and things I've written over the years. And so I'll be like, ah, here's a thing about researching steampunk Victorian dress or something. <laughs> um, but if you really just want to get in touch with me, my website is best. Cool. And that's gailcarriger.com. Um, and if you search Gail Carriger, it'll come right up. Fantastic. Well, I have so many other questions and I'll save them <laughs> for another time. Yes, we'll do this again. That would yeah. be awesome. Great. Thank well, you. Thank you so much for hosting me. This has been a, a real pleasure. Hey, absolutely. My pleasure too. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Fearless Storyteller. As a reminder, any and all links can be found in the show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, will you please consider leaving a review? By doing so, you'll be helping new listeners discover the Fearless Storyteller podcast.